I just want to begin our time together in God's Word this morning by mentioning for you something that's really been on my heart. And that is the concept of forgiveness. I imagine that you may be a little like me from the standpoint of struggling with forgiveness. Not extending it, but receiving it. And not so much uh, receiving it from your brother or sister in Christ, but receiving it from God as heartfelt and sincere exoneration and absolution for your sins. And I know maybe again you might be like me and you might have some grace to accept God's forgiveness of the sins you committed before you had the nature of Christ and of all of the things that you were and all of the things that you did before you met the Lord, you might have an easier time, like I do, accepting forgiveness. And some of those sins, you know, whew, you, you, you can somehow, I can somehow get my arms around receiving God's gift of forgiveness for 24 years of rebellious living. Sometimes I have a little bit more difficulty receiving and appropriating the forgiveness of God for the things that I've done as a believer, as a Christian. And I just want to encourage you from the Word of God that the forgiveness of Christ and the work of Christ is sufficient not only for the sins that you've committed before you met the Lord, but for the sins that you've committed since you met the Lord. And if you don't know the Lord in here this morning, I want to tell you that like the pearl of great price and the treasure that was hidden in the field, there is no amount of money that you could offer or no worldly possession that you could offer a true believer in place of their forgiveness. To, to know, to go to bed at night, to lay your head down at night and know that your greatest offense, which was stealing and taking your own life from God and doing with it as you would please, and that your personal offense to your Creator is wiped clean because of the work, the blood, the sacrifice, and the, the, the ministry of Christ. So I just want to encourage you, because I struggle with that. I, I, I'm, I'm very easily disappointed in myself, and I'm very easily prone to regret and wallowing and not letting, wallowing in my sin and not letting, and not, think of it this way, not honoring the work of Christ in the appropriation of that forgiveness that He won for your life, not only as an unbeliever, but as a believer. Because John says, if you say you have no sin, you deceive yourself and the truth of God is not in you. That, that we, are, we are all still living in the flesh and now it's no longer our true and core nature that sins, but the sin that dwells in our flesh. But that touches our minds and our hearts and it's sometimes hard to put that behind us and truly embrace that God does not have anything personally against you and that everything you deserved and anything that you would have deserved for the sins you have committed, are committing, or shall ever commit, Christ was punished for those sins and Christ died for those sins. So that's just a little primer for our study in Matthew 13. Doesn't that make the possession of the kingdom like a pearl of great price? What's more valuable than peace? What's more valuable than peace with God and knowing that there's nothing between you and your Creator 
and knowing that there's nothing between you and your fellow man, that as much as lies within you, you have by grace and through faith accepted and appropriated what God did for you in Christ. And that your one of your greatest acts of honor to what He did on Calvary is fully embracing that forgiveness and not living in your sin and not having your sin influence your mind, your heart, your attitude, or your actions because you are forgiven. You are forgiven. If you have repented and believed the gospel and God's grace has come into your life and woken you up and given you a new nature, a new heart, and a new mind, you have been forgiven. Appropriate that forgiveness. Live in that forgiveness. Rejoice in that forgiveness. And no amount of trouble in your life no amount of tribulation in your life, no amount of pressure, no amount of pressure in your life, no person, no king, nothing can separate you from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus. Revel in that, rejoice in that. If you don't know the Lord in here this morning, the undertone of everything that we're saying as a church to you is you can be forgiven. You don't have to go to bed tonight in your sin. You don't have to wake up tomorrow still feeling guilty and oppressed because of your rebellion and your, your vile acts of sin against God. That Somebody has taken care of that. Somebody has paved the way and made possible your forgiveness. Forgiveness is a, is a great thing. And I think that it sort of undergirds all of Christ's parables and sermons and messages. And blessed are those who mourn. You, you properly grieve over sin. And then you properly rejoice over the provision of Christ for that forgiveness. So it's, it's really here. It's uh, hard to remember these very foundational and basic things which define... I mean, if you're talking about witnessing, and you're talking about... I had a couple of, uh, had a couple of Mormons recently that uh, came into my world, and, and, and I, I challenged them on the technicalities of their heresy, of their cult, of their uh, works-oriented understanding, their sad acceptance of the lie of Joseph Smith and holding the words of a fool on par with the words of God himself in Scripture. And I think I was thorough in challenging their theology. I don't, I don't think that they were very, I don't think they were probably very happy that they bumped into me that day because it seemed like there was a trainer and a trainee. And I sort of did what I always do when I pick up on that. I go after the person who's being trained. You know, you're just getting started in this. You're, 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 you're vigilant, you're zealous, and you're wasting your life and you're, you're giving your whole life and soul to this lie from hell. Let me tell you why it's a lie. And I was. I was very technical. But when they walked away, and in reflection, I thought I missed an opportunity. Because I didn't really talk about the blessedness of being forgiven in their sin. That they could be forgiven of their sin. That their religion, that their cult, that their sect had no answer for the vileness of the human heart and the free forgiveness of God's purposeful 
work on the cross and a, and a total misunderstanding. I, I had, and I had some regret and felt some sin over that in my own heart. But then immediately, thank you, God. That's what I said was what I said. They were here. I hope you can use it. I used the scriptures. But please, Lord, remind me and help me the next time to, to talk about forgiveness and the personal sin that was in each of their lives and how they were, with their smiles and their ties and their white shirts and their bicycles and their book satchels, they were carrying around the burden of their own personal sin. And I focused more on the technicalities of their religion. And I said, Lord, please, next time, give me another chance and remind me about the possibility of the forgiveness of their sins. And so the Lord is all about this. We're just rejoicing in all that the Lord has given us. I hope you're at the spot where we're going to pick up. But we begin with discussing the recurrent themes in Matthew chapter 13. And like I said here, all these verses are in the New King James unless I tell you otherwise. This chapter opens with Jesus teaching from the boat and ends with His leaving there and going back home to Nazareth. It's an appropriate place for a chapter break. You know, the chapter breaks are man-made, but all of the historical scholars have tried to make the chapter breaks sectional breaks. They're not always so successful in doing that. I try to point it out when it's an awkward chapter break. If there's a place where maybe a chapter break could have come earlier, and the Gospels are somewhat difficult uh, to, to do that with, so we honor their, their work in that. But this is an appropriate place for one, and we'll it, it, the next chapter will begin with the report of Herod's displeasure over the whole matter of Jesus' presence. You know, Herod seems to be representative of somebody who just feels the distant pressure of conviction closing in on him through the ministry of Jesus and John the Baptist. And it's almost like a, a second-hand conviction that seems to just be pounding on him. And we'll get to that in chapter 14. But let's talk about... And, be good stewards with the chapter. We're going to just, I think, spend one more sermon in, not one more sermon. I don't want to say that because I'm already behind the clock on getting through these notes, but this should conclude our look at chapter 13 as far as the notes you have in your hand. Uh, firstly, let's look at these recurrent themes as stated already. The literary dominance, what I mean when I say literary dominance, what is Matthew focusing on when he's recording these events of Jesus? You know, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John record some of the events that are the same and some that are unique to them. Usually in the Synoptic Gospels, which are Matthew, Mark, and Luke, there's a pretty consistent habit of all three of them at least touching on the same events. And John, he just records some words and things that Jesus did uh, that are completely unique. But when I say literary dominance, I sort of mean what what is... What's behind the reason that Matthew is recording these particular events? He's not as concerned as Mark, for example, with a, a sequence of chronology and following the timeline as he is in a topical emphasis. He, he, he's, he's usually recording these events with some topical emphasis in mind that he wants to get across that came through in the teaching of Jesus. So as stated, the literary dominance of the chapter rests upon Jesus' revelation that it is intentional on God's part to hide the truth from the multitude. Now, I just read that like a nice college professor. But there are professing Christian bodies and groups that just right there you would have lost the whole congregation. Because that's unthinkable to people. 
that's untenable in the conscience, the human conscience, the human ethic. As we've said a million times from here, that's hyperbole, of course. There's no sense in which the natural mind can grapple with something like that as being fair and come to the conclusion that God is fair and that there is a just ethic behind hiding the truth intentionally from anybody. But we went through the words, remember? And we not only looked at this passage, but we looked at other passages where it is very consistent that I, that, that is exactly what God's doing and he, that He chose to do that before the foundation of the world. And that's how He's acting. And just because we can't understand it does not mean that it's fair. In fact, we are bound and obligated to confirm that it is even though we don't understand it. This must be restated as we ponder the difference between how we would do things versus how God does things. This is commensurate with Jesus' resistance of popularity. You remember he always would say, uh, he'd tell those he healed not to, teal, to, not to tell anybody. That's recorded in places like Matthew 8 that's already come and Matthew 9 that's already come. This was plainly, in other words, popularity was, listen, popularity was plainly not a goal of Christ. He was not seeking popularity. In fact, if you look at the tenor of his life, he resisted popularity. He, he, he understood that the miracles and raising people from the dead and walking on the water and healing the sick and casting out demons was likely to draw a, likely to draw a crowd, but the text says he didn't commit himself to them because he knew what was in them. He understood that the crowd was a, a mirage, an illusion. It was not, and we're deluded by the crowds. We, if the crowd goes along with it, we think that must be right. And if the crowd doesn't go along with it, we think that must, what's wrong here? Jesus was not under such delusion. He was busy with his Father's will, and his only goal was to please his Father. He was not inherently concerned with the approval of men and the popularity that goes along with that. In fact, popularity, notoriety, popularity, notoriety, notoriety, and influence were not on any level a measure of the success of his ministry. That's, again, like that first statement in the paragraph, that's, that's, that's hard to come to grips with. That's, that's really, for, for us, for me, especially growing up in a culture like ours, to not measure success based on the response of people is something that we have to intentionally rethink. So I'm asking us, I'm asking you, to consider the tenor of Jesus' life and to think about those things, that our responsibility applicationally is to worship God in grace and get the Word of God right and trust the Spirit of God to shine the light of the Gospel through our heart and through the heart of the church. And then we understand that it is God who works and wills according to His own good purpose and does what He wants with that light. Our role is to appropriate grace to get it right and we understand that that is a miraculous event in and of itself. As difficult as things can be, and more so as difficult as we can be, right? He based that metric of success exclusively upon the evaluation of his father. And his father was well pleased with him because he always did those things which pleased him. Now, application here. The goal the goal 
or maybe I should have said a goal. The goal of the divine nature is to please God, not exalt, preserve, or protect oneself. And you can hold those two in tension, you see, judging your motives, judging your decisions, judging, judging your, your own actions, examining your own heart. What does the Word of God say? If I'm to conform to what the Word of God says and the will of God, this is well-pleasing to my Father. And you can also hold the counterbalance in truth that if you pick up on the self-exaltation, the self-preservation thing on the other side, you're, you're more likely in self-preservation in terms of our fear and self-exaltation in terms of our pride are really the two big things of our flesh that are yanking at us all the time. We're afraid and then we're proud. We're afraid and then we're proud. We're, we're an unusual lot. That's for sure. The goal of the divine nature is to please God, not exalt, preserve, or protect oneself. Our goal in testimony, preaching, teaching, evangelism, etc., should be to love and worship God by our glad adoration of Him and our willing conformity to doing things His way according to His principle, principles, and that to the disregard of our chronic propensity to do things according to our own understanding. Great illustration in Jennings' call to worship in grandparenting. How difficult it is and how hard it is because of our own understanding and our own perception and our own awareness of the mistakes of others and how big those mistakes are in our eyes versus the mistakes we all make in our own eyes which we, which seem, we tend to lessen and they seem smaller to us. When we see, especially people we love and even people we don't, we want to correct them. We want to guide them. We want to advise them. We want to manipulate them. We want to control them. And a lot of times that's just coming from either our own pride or our own fear about what's going to happen to us if that person doesn't conform to our will. That's what it's all about most of the time for me. So I have to intentionally put my life on the altar of Christ's cross and crucify my flesh and say that my preoccupation is to do those things which please my Father and I'm praying for the grace of God and the Spirit of God to help me do that because left to myself I never will. Left to myself I never ever will. So that's the, that's the real recurring theme there in that chapter and what's a good verse to put with that of course Proverbs 3.5 Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not to your own understanding. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not to your own understanding. And the thing about our flesh is we're already like the leaning tower of Pisa. We're already kind of going that way anyway, right? So we have to intentionally push that bad boy back over to the other extreme. So make an intentional effort. I've given you the illustration, I think, many times. If you've never heard it, I don't know how. But when Amy and I went for financial counseling way early in our marriage, and all of a sudden we realized that we didn't know anything about money, and even less now, and the, our financial counselor uh, showed us how to write the ship, and he took a piece of notebook paper, and he said, your finances are as this, as this notebook piece of notebook paper that's creased in the middle, and it's bent over to one side. He said, if I just try to stand that 
piece of notebook paper back up on its own because of that crease and that propensity, it just falls back over. So what do I do? What did he do? He took that piece of notebook paper, he stood it up, then he took his finger and he put a crease on the other side and bent the paper in that direction. In other words, he's saying to us, we got some extreme work here to do. <laughs> and then he stood the piece of notebook paper back up and it stood upright. Well, my, our propensity from the flesh to the spirit is, we're, we're all, the, the flesh is so heavy, so oppressive, so dominant, so pervasive, and, and really apart from our new nature, which is thankfully the core of who we are if we're saved, but most of our empirical experience is in the flesh. And everything we do and everything we think and everything we encounter and everything we interact with, we have grown to, to learn, we have grown and learned to interact with things on the basis of the flesh. Putting on the mind of Christ is a whole new thing. When, when this verse seems harmlessly to say, don't lean to your own understanding, it's like, now be watchful about that. Don't watch, watch out for that. That'll get you every now and then. That's not the point of the proverb. It's all over you all the time, and that's the propensity and the predominant predilection of all human flesh. Pretty flesh and not so pretty flesh. It doesn't matter. The flesh is the flesh. So that's how you think about that. God is sovereign. He knows best. He is a forgiving God. And he does things differently to how we would do them. Thank God. And we have to get used to cultivating that new nature in our heart. And that comes, the, the new nature takes precedence and asserts its own rightful dominance as we practice godliness. That's why Paul said, exercise yourself toward God, godliness. To exercise something means that if it's left to itself, it won't be strong. Does that make sense? If you're going to exercise something, it'll, it'll sit there and lie dormant and get crusty and cranky and covered over, not cranky, but covered over and calloused because you're not exercising it. But if that godly core nature in your heart, if you take to the purposeful exercising of it, it'll, it'll grow and it will assert its intended dominance. Is that making sense? You have to practice godliness. You have to intentionally crucify the flesh. You have to purposely, like what Jenny's was saying, you have to purposely determine not to give your advice. If you don't purposefully determine not to do that, you're going to do it. You have to, you have to make, my, 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 one of my early pastors used to say, you have to make up your mind about that. Make, he'd say, put a stake down in it. Put it. Get it firm. If you don't give yourself to that discipline, the alternative of the flesh will... will like kudzu, it'll take over. It'll take over. So trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not to your own understanding. Number two, recurrent theme. Number two, recurrent theme. Everybody with me? The theme of the first two parables, you know, the first two parables are the parable of the sower who went out to sow and there were four soils that the seed fell upon and the parable of the wheat and the tares where the, after the wheat field had been planted, someone came along and sowed weeds in and among the wheat, amongst the wheat. The theme of the first two parables is clearly, now follow this, we're just learning some basic 
spiritual principles and reiterating some stuff we know and maybe looking at some things like the new nature from a slightly new and fresh perspective. The theme of the first two parables is clearly the difference and exclusivity. It's an important word. It's like my word authentic or authenticity. Authentic or authenticity. The difference and exclusivity of genuine spiritual life in the presence of that which appears to be genuine. Now, when those two Mormons assaulted me, I was loading a truck. And uh, I need a haircut right now, and I know that. And when I sweat, my hair does this Jack Nicholson thing. It just, I look like Barney Five on a stressed out shift. And I'm sweating, I got on you know, scrubby clothes, and they come up, pressed to the nines. I mean, it's 100 degrees outside, but they're tie, sharp, pressed, bicycle, satchel. They got the whole thing going on. Well, I'm not saying this pridefully, but if you look on that from the outward appearance, you get it wrong. You get it backwards. I've been visited by the mercy and grace of God and the kind forgiveness of a heavenly Father who's patient and long-suffering, not willing that I should perish. And they had the wrath of God sitting right on top of that bicycle helmet. That, that helmet was not going to protect them from what was coming. It just looked different. It just looked totally not what you would expect. And the point of these first two parables is... It's not about what you see. It's about what's inside. In the first one, it's about what's inside of that seed, which is the Word of God, and the correct soil of the human heart that has been prepared by God. There are three soils which, no matter how soily they may look, and they don't necessarily look too good, rocky soil along the path, and then the, the poison soil, it's not great, but you might look at it and, you know, well, something can come up here, something can grow here. Not necessarily. But the, the point of the parable is the authenticity and genuineness of the fourth illustration. The right seed, finding the right soil, produces the right fruit. The right seed finds the right soil and it produces the only fruit that that equation can produce, which is genuine spiritual life. In the field that was sown by the enemy and, 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 and attacked and, and uh, sabotaged by the enemy, you had the right seed of grain in the right field and when the right seed of grain found the right field, the, the stalk of wheat came up. Even though there was all this bad seed all around it, pressing in on it, seeking to suck the spiritual life or the, the natural life out of the wheat stalks, Still and yet, in that field, you had good soil, good seed, and those, both of those pictures illustrate authentic, genuine spiritual life. And the warning of both of those parables is that you can see something that looks very much like genuine spiritual life that you would even be deceived thinking about it, and you might not see it, and you might not perceive it, because it's so close to the real thing that it fools you. So that's the warning of the parable that, that 
you know, always hold on to that prayer of sovereignty. Always hold on to that prayer of mercy. Always, always remember that authentic spiritual life is created, preordained, preordained by the sovereignty of God to produce genuine spiritual life. Better safe than sorry. I'm telling you, and I, I say that with somewhat of a casual tongue-in-cheek, but when I, when I pray for my children, I'm not insulting them by praying for their salvation. I'm saying, Lord, I don't know the human heart. Some men's sins are evident. Others follow them on to judgment. I'm going to pray that if there's any chance that I've been deceived by that profession of faith, or if I've been deceived by that apparent production of spiritual interest in spiritual life, I'm in, in love and in Christ-likeness and through the warning of, of parables like these, I'm going to rely on the preordination, election of God, sovereignty of God, and power of God to save His people. The quality of the fruit-bearing seed and the real stalks of wheat also illustrate that the ultimate issue is what God puts in the seed of His Word. Both parables share that, uh, that affiliation. Both parables share the fact that the good seed is the Word of God concerning the good news of the kingdom. God alone is the source of and gives this seed life-giving property. I mean, you can. See, I think another thing that the uh, the second and the third soils of the parable of the sower and the sower, the pair of the sower and the seed, represents. I mean, you drop that seed, and if it hits any kind of dirt at all, it's like that seed of the Word of God is like this. It's, it's like it's got an engine. It's like it's vibrating. It's humming. It's alive. It, if you put it on the table, have you ever seen those? What are those shaky beans? You know, have you ever seen those? Those shaky beans, you put them on the table and they just shake all by themselves because there's so much nitrogen, so much power in those seeds from their creator. Well, see, the Word of God is like that. If it finds any kind of soil, it's going to grab a root and do something. It's gonna, it'll, it'll produce some kind of reaction in its environment. But it's only when that good seed finds that good soil that the end product of eternal life will bear its, its manifestation. This re-emphasizes our obligation, privilege, and the benefit. <laughs> Please don't tune out on any of this message because when you're covering a chapter, listen, when you're covering a chapter, you're, you're kind of sweeping over a lot of information. And there's probably something in this message that's meant to grab you. So don't, don't tune out. All of this is the Word of God. Remember that seed. It's, it's got that nitrogen, eternal, spiritual power in it. Okay? So uh, the, the re-emphasis of our obligation privilege and the benefit of simply getting the message right. My concern preaching, I'd love to be eloquent. I'd love to be Billy Grahamish, Spurgeonish, whateverish. Not going to happen. But I 
through your prayers can give myself to getting the message right. You, through hearing, studying, praying, and learning the Word of God, you can get your testimony right. You can learn the Gospel. You can get the message right. You can be a good messenger, a faithful message. It's not about how you're dressed. It's not about your economic status. It's not about the circles you run in. It's not about your background. It's not about, it's not about your, even your particular talents and gifts and proclivities. What ultimately comes down to what, what it ultimately comes down to in terms of God using your testimony in the life of others, Jew or Gentile, to bring salvation or condemnation is in getting the detail of the gospel correct. Get it right. Don't compromise repentance. Don't say the message is about you and God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life and this gospel is all about you and it's all about your, your personal happiness on this earth and, and, and you can believe now and repent later. The, the thing that matters is that you believe that there is a God and that He sent Jesus to die for you and however you feel about the Bible, if you can take some parts of it and it's okay and other parts of it and it's not, you don't need to apply a literal historical grammatical hermeneutic to to, to the scripture. Don't even worry about that right now. Just, just accept Jesus. Or God wants you to come to Him, but you got to do a few things first. Get the message of the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ right. And the correlation of the sinner's death, 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 burial, burial, resurrection right. You must die. Your life for you here must end. Your, your prioritizing of your personal happiness and your personal fulfillment and all the dreams and the fulfillments that you envision concerning the little kingdom that you're building for yourself, all of that has to crumble under the weight of God's conviction. And you have to know personally that your life is a direct and personal offense in the sight of God and He is severely offended by your existence. That's the gospel. But that there is kindness. There is a season and an opportunity. If you're hearing my words right now, there's a season and an opportunity for you for, to once and for all receive the grace and plead with God for mercy that you might be forgiven. That you might not have to stand before God in that awful day of judgment and give an account for your sin because how the scales come out are going to depend on where you go. Buddy, oh buddy, who's going to stand before God and come out good with that? Who's going to come before God and say, I'm clean and pure and without sin and there's no reason for me to perish. I have done nothing wrong. I'm innocent. Oh my goodness. That will be, listen to me carefully, an awful and soon to appear moment in your life. You will blink. Trust me. I read enough, see enough, live enough to know. You will blink a couple more times and you will be there. You will be there. How shall we answer? Concerning this message of the Gospel, we do not need to fix it. I've seen people in our church try to fix the Gospel to make it okay and not so awesome and and uh, ominous for those in their own families. 
What cruelty? What cruelty can you... You're messing with the seed. Don't mess with the seed. Don't, don't defile the seed. The message is the message. Get it right. You don't need to fix it. You don't need to disguise it. Who? Let me just put let me just put this in a lump of sugar for you here. That's the if you really want to get down to the modern method of evangelism, what they don't realize is when they put the seed of the word of God in the lump of the sugar of the world, it ruins the seed. You can't put the seed in a lump of sugar because it messes up, it messes with the seed. It changes the seed into something else. You can't do that. You don't need to disguise the seed. In fact, told you this before about fish, the more repulsive the bait may seem to you, the more attractive it is to the fish that's hungry for it. So you get it right, it doesn't matter how uh, obnoxious it might be to those who are perishing, or damning, or distasteful. It's the aroma of death to them. Of course, it smells like fish. Right? Get the message right. Get the message right. No need to fix it, disguise it, make it more appealing to the world. The power of grace is given to articulate the true gospel and carry that gospel and carry its life into your life. Remember old Jonah? I think it's one of the best illustrations in the Bible about the power of the seed. Never was a person more determined not to deliver the message and at the same time not to defile the message. You, those two things in Jonah's life just could not coexist. He loved the message. He loved the accuracy of it. He revered that message so much that even to the dreaded Ninevites, he would not have said anything other than exactly what God told him to say. But when God came to him and said, this is where I want you to plant this seed, Jonah said, I'm going to take this seed and I'm going somewhere else. And he had to spend three days and three nights in the belly of a great fish, stinky fish, nasty, dark, gross guts of the fish, where there was probably just enough air where he didn't die. It may, even have, been a, it may have even been a miracle that he did live, because that's the sign of Jonah that the Lord refers to. I, I don't want to get into that. I'm not, I'm not really sure about it. But most of us would have perished in that situation. And then the... The, the, he, Jonah gets the point of the chastisement there in the belly of the fish and he offers this great, humble, repentant prayer because he's broken, but he's never let go of the reality of the details of what's in the sea. He never let that go. On the ship with the sailors in the belly of the fish, even at the end when there's doubt, he still... He, Jonah's a, Jonah was a complex dude. But what did he say in that fish at the end of that horrible ordeal? I will sacrifice to you, my God, with the voice of thanksgiving, I will pay what I have vowed. Salvation is of the Lord. That's one of my favorite verses in the Bible. What a contradiction he was. What a man he was. A wicked messenger falls into trouble, trouble, but a faithful ambassador 
brings health. And there comes Jonah, smelling like a fish, walking through the most sophisticated city on the planet. I'm, I'm sure uh, I, that's one thing I would share with Jonah. I'd be like poorly dressed, fish guts hanging off out of my hair, walking through the city of Nineveh saying, in 40 days, this whole thing's coming down. Repent. Jonah just simply was a faithful messenger and the value and property that was in the Word of God found good soil in Nineveh. And what happened? The whole city. The whole city repented. Like the cold of snow in time of harvest is a faithful messenger to those who send him. For he refreshes the soul of his masters. Let me ask you a question right here. Would you like to refresh the heart of God? Would you like to go to bed at night and wake up in the morning and walk through the day thinking about the fact that God's heart is refreshed because of your life? One of the ways you can guarantee that that's happening is to get the message right. Be a faithful messenger and you like a cool drink on a hot day will refresh even God's heart. And I'm going to tell you, in the middle of the worst trial of your life, that will make your life worth living. You will find sustenance and encouragement in faithfulness to the Word of God. So, how about us? How about us? Do we recognize the sovereignty of God and salvation? Do we pray vigilantly? Not about circumstances and how God might change this circumstance and move this person here and keep that person there and do this thing in the circumstances, but that God would break through to those we love and are praying for and produce genuine awareness and conviction and the reality of knowledge of their personal offense before God and produce in their hearts the Word of God, and the regeneration of the Spirit. That's, that's, what, we're, that's what we're about. That's, that's, that's what we are. We have to take our hands, our grimy hands off of God's... Don't, listen to me. You're trying to change people and get your hands on people, change their circumstances. That's God's circumstance. You get your hands off of that. You get your hands off of that. So you take your grimy hands off of His holy work and you... Conform your life, your heart, and your mind, and your actions to the will of God. Be a faithful messenger and pray that God will do the needful thing. That He will produce authentic fruit, not some, some plant choked by thorns. That's the, I'm going to tell you, in our professing evangelical world, you have a professing multitude of plants being choked with thorns choked by the cares of this life, the things of this world, and the pursuits of temporal matters. And the pursuit of temporal matters. And all the while, professing to love God. But let me tell you, on that plant, there is not one, not one shriveled up piece of fruit. Not one. Because it's poisoned with self and worldliness. And all of the profession of loyalty, well, I love Jesus, I love God, I'm a Christian will not change the reality of whether or not that seed has gone into that heart, found good heart soil, and produced true, genuine fruit. So is that 
what we're striving for. We understand that there is a, 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 a wheat and a tear, so to speak, in our experiences. And we also, as we heard last week, we don't have to, sometimes we don't necessarily spend a lot of our time and energy trying to pluck out the tears, let them both grow together, and God will, God will do what's right at the end. But, but our prayers and our diligence and our cultivation is, I don't want to spend, let me, I don't want to spend one second cultivating a weed. I was totally a little joke to myself while I was doing that. I don't want to share it with you, but I don't want to spend one second cultivating a weed. Not one. Give us wisdom, discernment, grace, humility to recognize that the love one another's within the context of this body should consume us and God will take care of the heart and those particular matters. Don't be like Jonah. Get the, emulate the part of Jonah's life that's right, getting the message right, getting the, uh, paying your vows, fulfilling your commitments that you have made to the Lord. But don't resist the will of God because it's unpleasant to you or because you don't like how it's going. Get your hands off those circumstances. Take your hands off of that. Get your hands off of that circumstance. That's God's business. You might find yourself like Jonah at the end of your life, sitting on a hill, bemoaning your loneliness. Mm -hmm.